Good morning, good morning. Please grab a seat. My name is Tim. It's really good to be with you. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, I want to uh, invite you to, to join me in saying, oh, well, there he is, right there. If you would join me in saying happy birthday to Adam. Happy birthday, Adam. If you don't know who Adam is, he's one of our pastors. He was just standing here a minute ago, and he hates attention on his birthday. So there, that's a little bit about Adam. So uh, it's, it's really good to be with you. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to, to grab one. There's some on the shelves on the side. If you've got a phone or a screen of any kind in front of you, you can find it on there. But um, we have been in a uh, series this year that we're simply calling The Story. And since uh, the beginning of September, we've been in one uh, short book uh, that's titled First Peter. Uh, it's 105 verses long, and it is written uh, by a guy named Peter. If you're not familiar with Scripture, that often happens. You, you write a letter or a book, you get to name it after yourself. He wrote two because he enjoyed the first one so much. And so it's First Peter that we're in, and we've been in a number of weeks, and we're going to go through until Thanksgiving uh, in this short but significant letter that in so many ways is written to us today um, because our context is, is similar in many ways, not all, but in many uh, to the first century uh, re- recipients and, and readers of this, of this letter that, that, first, that, that Peter wrote. So that's where we're at. We're in chapter three, um, and uh, what we've been doing is moving along through a reading plan. If you've not uh, joined us in that, there's a bookmarks in the lobby, and then we send out a weekly email that has the readings for the week. If you've been following along, you know that First Peter is very short, and we, we moved through it pretty quickly in September, and we're on to different books and Isaiah and others right now in our reading plan, but we've stayed in First Peter for this fall, um, and so that's where we'll be uh, today. So I want to invite you to do this. I want uh, If you would just for a moment, uh, take another uh, deep breath and close your eyes, and let's pray together as we, as we enter in and, and prepare to look at God's Word together this morning. God, you're here among us right now. Um, we're not just in a room as a bunch of people uh, singing and reading and greeting one another and uh, laughing and praying and being together, but we're in your midst, and so this is your time, your agenda, and we're in your presence, and, and we're glad to be here. We need to be with you. We know that you're with us wherever we go, but you call your people, you, you direct us, you command us to do this, to get together and celebrate you and who you are and that you're a good God that loves us, that is all powerful, that's created us intentionally and specifically, that you've decided that we are valuable to you, that you love us and that you wanna do good things in and through us in your world. Holy Spirit, we need your help in that. Uh, Many of us in this room uh, know that you are with us and walk through every day with us and that you've brought us to life and now want to continue to transform us into the people that you have designed us to be, that we would be more and more of those men and women. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work and move even in our time right now, um, that you would comfort and convict and challenge and direct us. Would you do that work right now? And Jesus, as we just sang, that you paid it all. You created a way. You came and rescued us by giving your own life. And so we declare in this place that that you're our Savior and our King, and we need to hear from you. And so would you guide and direct us as we look to your word this morning? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. 
First Peter chapter three. Uh, I want to. I want to do something. I want to read uh, seven verses. And uh, if you uh, aren't aren't you know, some of you kind of look ahead and you know what's coming. Others of you don't. Um, I just want to let you know that these are uh, verses, and you're going to hear sentences and phrases that seem completely out of touch with our world today. Uh, they seem foreign. They seem odd. It's highly like they would even seem offensive to some of us here right now. So I just, that's just the warning. That's just the heads up. Um, so great. Let's read the Bible together. First Peter chapter 3, seven, seven sentences, and then we'll kind of talk through it uh, together. But First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Good stuff. <laughs> I, uh, I said to, to uh, somebody earlier, it, it, if, if you're familiar with our, our beloved uh, football club, the Portland Timbers, um, and if you've ever been to a, a match, you've, you've seen the, the, the Timber Army and you've, you've heard of them. Um, and you know that they're the most passionate fans and um, they, they scream things and chant things that we won't repeat in here. And they're just, they're just huge fans, raving fans of, of the Portland Timbers. And it's like, it's like going into, and if you've ever gotten invited by a friend and they didn't tell you that that's where you're sitting, then you quickly learned, oh, both we're not sitting and I have to act, you know, like the rest of them. Um, and imagine being there in, 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 the, in the Timbers army and screaming and chanting and doing all of that. And then in the middle of the match, standing up and saying like, go Sounders, which if you don't know who that is, it's the Seattle Sounders and you know, hated rivals. And um, that's a little bit of what this feels like of reading this text at this time in Portland. It feels a little bit like everybody's going in this direction and there's, there's this voice or this idea or this person going against the grain. And um, I, I hate to say it that way because it kind of makes it, the timbers look bad and the sounders look good and I don't ever want to do that. But, um, but that's, what it, that's what it feels like a little bit. This, this text has things in it, again, that sound maybe um, outdated, uh, um, even offensive. And so 
What I want to remind us as we work through this text together this morning is that when we come to Scripture, when we, when we open up this book and read it in any form at any time, there's a few things that, that we as a church believe about it. One is that it's God's story that he's telling us about himself and that he's good. And so through every page and story and chapter and word, we see the goodness of God come through in some way. We, we have some work to do to find out what that, how that is in, in this particular text. The other thing is that what we see throughout Scripture is that while God is good and powerful and full of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, that the world is broken, that the world's a messed up place. And if you think it's messed up right now, just, just go back up and, you know, just pick up an early Genesis and it's been messed up for a long time. It's broken. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's amazing, but it's, it's also broken and, and messed up. God is good. The world is broken. And then throughout all of the Bible, Jesus comes through over and over and over consistently as the Savior and as the King. And that as we, we read the Bible and we catch a vision for and become more familiar with who Jesus is and what he's done, we realize that there's good news for each and every one of us throughout all of Scripture. God is good, the world's broken, and our hope is in Jesus. And so how does that true even in these seven verses that sound so outdated and old and odd? And so that's part of our work together uh, this morning. We also need to acknowledge that, that these were first written by Peter to followers of Jesus who were new to following Jesus, and they were in the first century. And in the first century, Rome ruled most of the known world at that time. And so Roman culture and way of thinking and believing and acting and being a person and being a, a village or being a city or being a society was, all, was dominated by Rome. And so the values of Rome and the beliefs of Rome and the culture of Rome permeated everything. And so if somebody came to believe in Jesus, they would naturally ask, okay, what, what, what does this mean? How do I live and exist in, in this particular Roman province or city or, or village? And in the first verses of, of 1 Peter, Peter says, this is who I'm writing to. It's followers of Jesus, and he calls us exiles or scattered and scattered people, and later on foreigners and aliens and strangers in a strange land. And by they may have lived in the same city or village their entire life, but then when they become followers of Jesus, all of a sudden they have a higher citizenship, that they belong to a new God. They're, they have a new identity, that they're a new person. And now they may have lived there all their life, but they're in exile. They're different now because they live there. And so they're rightly asking, how do we live as women and men who are now seeking to follow Jesus when very few around us are? And we have all these cultures and ways of being and systems. How do we follow Jesus in what is here? And so this is what Peter is writing to and addressing. And so it's a particular context. And that's true even when it comes to relationships in the home, marriages, and families. And so they're asking for direction. And Peter is beginning to, to write it. And it's important as we talk specifically about wives and husbands that it would be very odd for a wife to ever have a faith that is different than their husband. And so whatever faith system or particular temple or idols or deities that the husband believed in, the wife would, would be just accepted to follow along in way. And not only that, but the wife had very little power at all in that context in society and time. Very little voice. Marriages looked very different than they do now. By and large, most people today have a, have a view of, of, of some form of equality between a husband and a wife. So whatever version of we have, that, we have that today or that we long for that today or pursue that today, you have to know that that was a foreign idea. Nobody had that idea in these cities that were influenced by Roman culture in the first century. And so the, 
the husband had all of the power. And in fact, in many ways, the wife was a, viewed as a possession of the husband. There was no sense of fidelity. Uh, the husband could find sexual fulfillment wherever he wanted. Um, he could tell the wife what to do. He could command her. I mean, it was a very, very different context. If you're saying, oh, no, that's just like my home, that's not a good thing. You have a problem. There's, there's something wrong there. In the context that this is writing to, it's very different than it was today. And so it's helpful for us to be able to say, what is this text saying and what is it not saying? It's not saying, this is not a biblical text, and it, this text particularly has been twisted and used and abused in many ways throughout um, throughout its existence. Uh, and, and maybe you actually know stories of that, or maybe you even come from a church background where, where you've heard this before, and it's been used or abused in, in some way. We're going to do our best work this morning to try to find out what, what's, what's really good from God in this that helps us step into a broken world with the power and redemption of Jesus and find hope in this text this morning. So what it's not saying is that it's not affirming patriarchy. It's also not saying that, that, that patriarchy is always bad, but it's not affirming patriarchy. I was uh, out to lunch with a few men from Mosaic uh, about a week and a half ago, and we were sitting outside on a sandwich shop on Burnside, and across the street there was a guy walking down the street screaming at the top of his lungs, long live the patriarchy. Anybody want to guess how many people were following and cheering with him? Like, yeah, none, and... Like you, most people on the street that day thought he was a little crazy. So this text is not affirming patriarchy, and and that's not how we'll talk about it today, is try to put that in place in some way, where where men have a hierarchical position over women. The other thing that's really, really important to hear clearly this morning, particularly if you're a woman that's in an unhealthy, abusive relationship, that this is not a text calling for wives to stay with husbands who are physically abusing them. Find protection, get out ask for help. The same could be said for if a husband is inviting a a, a wife into sin in some way. Hey, come and let's try this, or let's go this way, or let's do this this plan, or or take this action, or participate in this that's sinful in some way. This text is not saying, stay in that and go with him. That's not what it's saying. And finally, and perhaps most relevant for many of us today, is that, that this text is not describing or prescribing a normative marriage relationship where we could look at it and go, this is how marriage is to be. Uh, Let me say it this way. Um, A young gal here came to faith here at Mosaic through a family and uh, a number of years ago, uh, and then uh, the last number of years has found a a guy and started dating and they, uh, he's a believer and they, uh, I got to be a part of their wedding just this past week. And if we would have sat down prior to the wedding or if they would have started reading on their honeymoon this text and said, here, let's shape our marriage around this text, um, that would be a mistake. (laughs) That's not what this text is for. This isn't prescribing a normal marriage relationship that's not to be used like that. We've got a number of young couples that are going to get married here in the next few weeks and months and part of Mosaic. This isn't their starting point. You've missed it. That would be closer Ephesians chapter 5 where we have this picture of marriage described in, in Scripture and there's other places. This is not one of those. What this text is doing, what Peter is doing when he writes not just these seven verses, but, but all this is writing into a particular historical context, into a system, into something that is. And he's saying this is how to be a follower of Jesus in this time in relation to these kinds of, of situations. What he's doing is he's saying specifically, this is how to step into a system and an order and a thing that is in existence in society right now, again, in the first century, and to be a revolutionary 
in the way of Jesus in these places that you find yourself. This is how to be a revolutionary in the way of Jesus. And this is how, I read this this week. Let me read it to you. It says this, Jesus always comes, listen, revolutionary in the way of Jesus. Jesus always comes with grace. Grace that is disruptive and out of the norm into the midst of what exists, breaks into it in order to break it open for its own healing. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus always comes with grace, grace that is disruptive of the norm, to come into what is in order to break it open for its own healing. He breaks into it in order to break it open. Now, I can tell you that that's what he's done in my own life. I've experienced that personally. Many of you have experienced that personally, that Jesus comes into my life with grace. That's his entryway into my life is by grace. And I receive that grace. And then it, he, he cracks me and breaks me and then says, this is how I'm going to heal you and put you back together. And that is through grace, through the power of what Jesus has done. That's the good news of Jesus. Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus always comes with grace. And that kind of grace is a disruptive grace out of the norm, into the midst of what exists, you and me, systems of this world, relationships, places where they're broken, breaks into it in order to break it open for its own healing. How does he do that? The very three verses right before this verse that starts, wives in the same way submit, in the verses right before that, look at this, 21 through 24 of chapter two. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. An example there means, literally, it means to be able to trace something. That you see something that you want, you want not to be able to do it or copy it or have it, and to put it down and to be able to trace it. And uh, My youngest son, just his, his grandma, just bought him this uh, art book of how, you know, how to learn to, to be an artist. He's 12 years old and um, wants to be able to draw better. And, there, and there's these practices, and, and he showed us a picture that he drew uh, with his grandma this, this weekend, and it was this like legit drawing of a of a cat, and with shading and everything, like it looked, it looked like a cat. It was, and then he got home and he showed us the book, and it started with these circles. I don't know anything about art. He, these circles and these general shapes, and then he says, and then I did this, and then I did, and there's these steps to drawing a cat in this book, and he did it, and it looked, it was great. I should have asked him if I could put it up in front of you. I'm biased because I'm a dad, but it, 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 I thought it looked really, really good. Jesus is saying he's the example for us that we literally trace his same life onto our life. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. He did not retaliate. He could have, but he didn't retaliate. Grace, a disruptive grace. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, listen to this, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This is talking about Jesus Christ laying down his life. And it says, in the moment that he laid down his life, while he could have retaliated, he extended grace to those that were going to beat him and nail him to a cross. He didn't retaliate against them. He laid down his life. And it says he did that because he trusted his father. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's, that's how he brings disruptive grace into what is to break into it and to break it open for its own healing. What does this mean for husbands and wives, both then and, and today? 
It's an invitation to trust that there is something bigger going on than just the broken relationship or broken system that we find ourselves in. It says that, that Jesus, by laying down his life and trusting his father and then resurrecting, he kicked off the beginning of something new, of Jesus bringing more and more of his kingdom into this world. And that he actually is currently right now, although we don't experience in everything, the reality is, is that he reigns over all. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. Listen to this description of Jesus. Because we have to have this description of who Jesus is and what he's doing in order to fully understand what Peter is writing in chapters 3, verses 1 through 7. Listen to this is how it describes Jesus. The Son, that's Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, over all creation. For in him, that's Jesus, for in him all things were created, that Jesus was there at creation, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, anything that you can think of, Jesus is over and above it all. He was involved in creating everything. Have been created through him and for him. He, that's Jesus still. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He, still Jesus here. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done, because he was there at creation, because he's created over, he's supreme over everything, that Jesus is king in the here and now, right now. We don't experience that in every thing internally for ourselves in every relationship and certainly in every system in our world right now. But what this says is the reality is, is that Jesus is king, that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is over everything. And Jesus is the one that didn't retaliate, but brought a disruptive grace into this own place that he found himself when he lived from birth to 33 years old and was crucified, dead, resurrected, spent about 40 years and ascended into heaven. He came into what was and worked within it with this self-offering, sacrificial, gracious love. That's, that's the kind of life that we want to trace onto our own life. That's who we want to become. And so knowing that, then when we come to verse 1 of chapter 3, and it says, wives in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, in the same way as talking to, how did Jesus live? In the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their, wives, of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your wives. Imagine if you could, for a second, and, and again, I hope that this is a stretch for you and you have to really imagine it, that, that a wife, in virtually every way in the first century, is viewed as less than her husband. It was a man's world. It was more powerful, had more influence, had more rights for sure. That wife, again, in many ways was, was viewed as a possession. And it was nearly unheard of for a wife to have a different belief. I mean, probably even a different idea than her husband. And all of a sudden, women are coming to faith in Jesus and asking, how do we do this now? Because my husband goes to temple and makes sacrifices to some other idol. How do I do this now? Do I, because he's against Jesus, do I stage a, a violent overthrow? 
Do I, do I stab him in the middle of the night? Do I mouth off to him and show him all the new things that I've learned? Do I disrespect him because he's disrespecting my savior now? Like, how do I behave in this situation? And what we find is that Peter says, in that situation, which isn't great, he's not affirming the situation in, every, in any way, shape, or form, but he's saying, because you found yourself in that situation, there is a way to actually treat him. And imagine for a husband to say, I don't know what's going on here that you have a different faith. We didn't talk about that. I haven't signed off on that. But other than not going to temple with me and doing sacrifices, you've actually become a more amazing person in virtually every way. That you still respect me and honor me. That you still serve me in, in certain ways. That you still speak of me to others in a respectful way. That you're kind, that you're generous, that you're gracious, that you're loving, that you're sweet. I don't understand how you do this. You have a different God than I do now, which again, I'm, I'm struggling with, but in every way you're a better person. So I, I think I'm gonna still keep going to this temple, but I'm kind of curious about this. And it says that they don't believe the word, which means they've heard the word and they've rejected it. And so she's not gonna try to convince him with more words. He's already heard it and rejected it. But now he's seeing the character of her life and he's drawn to it. That's, that's the picture that's painted here that you actually could be a certain kind of person, even in a situation that is, is far from ideal. And that's why it goes into the very next verses. It says this. Actually, before those, the thing that allows a woman to do that, a wife to do that, and again, this, isn't, this text is not talking to, to all women, to, to all men. This is within a marriage relationship between one wife and, and one husband. The thing that empowers her and gives her the strength and the, the word that is used throughout 1 Peter is the word hope to even treat her husband in that way is that she knows like Jesus did before Pilate that there's somebody over her husband as flawed and as wrong and misled as he is, there's somebody over him. Jesus looked at Pilate and said, you wouldn't have any power unless there was power from above given to you in your position right now. And that a wife can know that about her husband as she's following Jesus and say, he wouldn't be in this, in this place if the culture didn't allow him to do that and his family and everything else. But I know that there's somebody of higher power. And so I don't belong to him anymore. I actually belong to Jesus now, and I'm a different person. I have a different identity, and part of my identity is that I am free, and I don't belong to him, but I can still stay within this context and still find ways to respect and honor him because I know that there's somebody ultimately that's in control, and so I can do this, and when she treats him in that way, he then sees a different person and would wonder, how is it that you're able to be that way? That's what a disruptive grace begins to look like and feel like. Verse 3 says this, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. This is so helpful because now you know what to wear and not wear. kidding. I mean, but seriously, like that, isn't that weird that that's in the Bible? Like 
Your beauty does not come from outward adornment. Okay, that's not a new concept. I've heard that before. Such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Uh, fine, fine clothes. I mean, that's a little relative, right? Like how much you spend on clothes and you spend on clothes might be different and what's fine to you is not fine to you. And now, now we can walk around and go, okay, well, that looks like a really, really expensive jacket. And so I'm going to label that fine. And now I'm going to lovingly confront you in Christ and say, you're sinning according to verse three of chapter three of first Peter, because you have fine clothes on. And clearly that's a gold piece of jewelry that you're wearing. The only jewelry I've ever worn is gold. And so I'm clearly in violation of this as well. You should only wear silver jewelry and bronze is okay too. That's cool. And hairstyles like elaborate, like let's debate what elaborate is and not like what is, I mean, how do we figure that out? And if you want to get really technical, what elaborate meant there was all these different ways that they would put their hair up and they would attempt to color it and change it and put things in it and all that. And then when they exhausted all of that in their own culture, they would reach out to a foreign culture and they would find tribes in what's modern day Germany and they would ship in hair from Germany and they would put it into their own. And what color would that be? comes from Germany, it's blonde. So if you're wearing a nice jacket with a gold ring on and have blonde hair, you are completely violating this verse. I mean, is that what, what I, as I read this, I realized like, okay, Abby and I really have to wrestle through this because we, we, uh, we got married at 23 and 24 and had one prenup, um, which was good because we had combined total zero dollars. And we, we did a verbal prenup and that was that in our home, uh, that, and it, this was, her idea and initiative, and it's brilliant, and I'm committed to it without ever thinking twice. Um, she said, um, here's, what I, here's one thing I need, and uh, that's regardless of how much money we have or don't have, that a non-negotiable will be uh, for me and whatever offspring we create, that there is uh, care for our hair, our skin, and our teeth. Done easy for me. So that's our, that's our, so, you know, we hadn't spent a lot of time reflecting on this verse, but, and my wife's also blonde, so there's that mark against us as well. But what, what is this possibly saying about, the, 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 the idea is, is actually not a, not a new concept to us that our, our, and when it talks about adornment is how do we arrange ourselves? What effort do we put in arranging ourselves? And it says, don't let it be the appearance alone that we find beauty in. And this isn't saying that we can't spend money on these things and can't spend money on our hair and, and time and, and, and care about that. It says don't, don't put effort into that thinking that that's going to be your value to other people. That's, that's not how we're designed and created as, as human beings. And, and, and instead, find it in your inner self. Rather, it should be of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, gentle and quiet spirit, that, I mean, if, there, if there's not like a a societal stereotypical in times past of here, this is what a, a woman should be. I mean, th- th- this is it. And so to, to hear that today and say, wait, 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 wait. I, no, I'm not fitting into that. I'm not squeezing into that. I'm not limiting myself into that. There's a little bit like, well, what's the opposite? Do you want to be a brute who's really loud? Like, oh, okay. I don't, I mean, that's, I don't think that's going to go over really great. But, but when you actually stop and just go, what is that? What does that look like? Gentle and quiet spirit gentle and quiet spirit. There's an example of a person who embodies this fully that scripture celebrates and says, this is somebody who has a gentle and quiet spirit. And it's going to be no surprise to any of us who that is. It's Jesus who happens to be a male. And that's our example of gentle and quiet spirit. And that what the word gentle technically means, it doesn't mean just a demeanor or something like that. That's that's, that's too surface level. It's deeper than that. The word gentle means entrusting God is powerful and in control 
regardless of our circumstances. That's what the word gentle means. Because when that is in place, we're actually able to be at peace. And when we're able to be at peace, we're able to be gentle. That's what is underneath the word gentle. And the quiet goes along with that. It means trusting that God is in control. And what it, what it does in a, a more familiar word that is so necessary and needed now because we have lived in such a, a time of epidemic anxiety and anxiousness is that it's a non-anxious presence. That somebody can be non-anxious regardless of what is swirling around them because they trust that God is in control. And that is beautiful. And that is appealing. And that is winsome. And that draws people in. And that is another way that disruptive grace represents in relationships to be gentle and quiet, to be Christ-like. Tertullian had this, he's an early church father, he lived about 100, 150 years after, after Jesus, and he said this of Jesus, if Jesus is to be our model of what beauty is, and the crucifixion was his most declarative act, what picture of beauty does that paint? And he says this, he who is both the head of man and the beauty of woman, who is the husband of the church, that is Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, what sort of crown did he put on? What did he adorn himself with for both male and female? A crown of thorns. It reinforces the call. It restates that Jesus stepped into what existed, what was, in such a way with disruptive grace in order to break into it, in order to break it open for its healing, that it could be something more. Peter then goes on and gives us an example for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. I, I, I meant to give you a heads up, husbands, before I read that, because some of you probably like nudged your wives or winked or said, look, I, I told you you should call me Lord. Like that, you know, at least in front of the kids, like once a week, that would be, that would be great. The, nobody's going to try to obey anything. That's not going to go over at all. But here we have an example. Peter explicitly points to it and says, here's, here's an example of a holy woman in Scripture. Let's go back in Scripture and find a holy woman. Here, here we go. We got, we got Sarah. We got Sarah who, who honored Abraham and respected him and followed him and went with him and and it celebrates her, it obeyed Abraham and called Abraham her Lord. That's the example. Now, if you don't know anything about Sarah, it's worthwhile looking at Sarah a little bit. This is the example. Here we go. She did those things. She respected him. She followed him. She called him Lord. Well, she also laughed at him. When he was like, honey, we just, I know we just passed our 70th wedding anniversary and we've never had a kid but I think God's telling us that we're going to have a kid. And she laughed at him. I don't know that that's a stereotypical picture of gentle and quiet spirit. And then when she came along and said, okay, I'll believe with you. I'll go along with this. This is crazy, but I'm going to, I'm going to you know, your God is my God and we're going to do this thing together. And okay. And then it's not happening. So, okay, listen, Abraham, this must be what God meant. He meant, you know, just go sleep with the maid and make a baby. And, and then, you know, that'll be fulfilled. And then Abraham's like, okay. And, and does that. In case you didn't know this, Abraham is not a stellar husband. Not a stellar husband. Man of faith, absolutely. When it comes to husbanding, no, poor. So he, he sleeps with the maid, makes a baby, and then 
Later on, Sarah has Isaac, fulfillment of God's promise, and then, and then she, gets, she says, we got to get rid of the maid and send him out and go let him die in the desert. Like not, I mean, th- th- this is the woman that's being held up. She doesn't fit the stereotypical the picture of what we might think is a gentle and quiet spirit. But yet she's the one that is pointed to. A real person, human, flawed. Great things about her, poor things about her, but not stereotypical if you want to feel locked in by gentle and quiet spirit. It means anything other than somebody who puts their trust in God. And Abe, again, is not a stellar husband, yet he, he stayed and sought, to, she stayed and sought to honor him as best she could. And because she did, God honors her and says, this is an example of a woman in this. We've got six verses about wives. We've got one verse about husbands. In case you want to Take that as an easy day off, guys. The, the picture of a biblical marriage that we find in, in Ephesians chapter 5, which is if, if you want to look at a, an image of marriage, that's, a, that's a, a good place to start. This is not. Don't start here. Ephesians 5 has three verses to women and eight or nine towards men, so it's completely opposite balance of, of this here. But verse 7 says this, Husbands, in the same way, Be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This begins to to uncover and point to the call on men in that context and what exists then. If you're going to be a man in this context, it's going to come to follow Jesus. And the system that is in place is one where in marriage, a man has complete control. If a woman had a, if a wife had an affair, it was okay to end her life. If a husband had an affair, nothing happened. His friends maybe tell him, hey, would you just conceal that a little bit? But nothing happened. I mean, to talk about the un- imbalance, to talk about what it means to be a weaker partner, that's weaker, completely disempowered. There's no power there for her. It also means beyond just not having power there, it, it means more than that. And that, that's even a, a, an odd thing to even say out loud that a wife, that a woman, we'll keep it just to marriage here, but a wife is a weaker partner than, than a husband. And we know that, that it has to mean something that's there in Scripture, but we're not quite sure what it means. Is it, does it mean weaker intellectually, not as, not as smart as, as a man? Feel free to make that argument with somebody. Like, try, try that out. See how long you last. This, no, it can't possibly mean that. The idea that a, a woman, by being a woman, is less intelligent, less intellectual, has less capacity and strength, is weaker, makes no sense. We've proven that at humanity over and over and over again. It's not a question. Emotionally, is a woman a, a weaker partner emotionally? I've, I've shared numerous times that into my early 30s, I was aware of three emotions I had, and one of them was hunger. <laughs> That's not a statement of strength. That's a strength statement of naivete and immaturity and being limited. That's a statement of being weaker than my spouse, who I counted him recently and has about an infinite emotions, and is actually way ahead of me in that way and being able to talk about them and identify them and process them. And she's leading me in that way that I'm actually growing in that. And I have now nearly double-digit emotions. I'm getting stronger. It can't be emotion that a man is a stronger partner and a woman is a weaker partner. When it comes to physical strength, men are stronger physically. 
Every man is not stronger than every woman. If you line them up over the history of all, every, every man and woman that was ever, ever lived and started at the weakest and went to the strongest and matched them up and had one-on-one battles, men would be undefeated. And maybe you're saying, well, you haven't met my wife. And I said, yeah, I, I would not, if you know who Ronda Rousey is, I would not pick a fight with Ronda Rousey. I mean, like, in my mind, I might, like, that, okay. And then if I sorry, I met her, she would snap my arm out of joint. Like, that, that can happen. But just scientifically, men are, are, are stronger. In that culture, with the power dynamic being different, and then physical power being present as well, it says, respect the weaker partner. And respect right there, get this, respect right there is the exact same word that is used for honor the emperor in a chapter earlier. Honor the emperor, who you're never going to meet and get close to and has power over you that you can't imagine competing with because he's got an army. So honor the emperor. Okay, sure, I'll do that. That's easy. No one's hardly going to ever know. But to honor my wife, to that call to be on a husband would have been radical, would have blown their minds, would have been this high calling that would have been difficult, challenging, and would have set them apart as somebody totally different in their role of husband. They would have looked different from all of their friends because they treated all of a sudden what most viewed as a possession as equal to them because they understood that she is equal to them as heirs with the gracious gift of life that they have in Jesus. And if she's not a follower of Jesus yet, wow, what a wonderful opportunity to love her and to elevate her and to respect her and to honor her. That's the kind of different kind of man and husband that Jesus through Peter is calling husbands to in the first century and absolutely for us today. Ephesians says this, Ephesians 5 chapters, it's, it's a couple of verses spliced together. Be subordinate one to another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to their own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as also Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the picture of what we're called into, a husband and wife who both know Jesus. This is the image of marriage that we're to aspire to, that we've been gifted Submitting one to another, considering others better than ourselves. That's what that word means. That's what the calling is to. When it ends with this, so that nothing will hinder your prayers, let me read to you this by Douglas Herring. Males who do not acknowledge and live in the reality of that grace, meaning that disruptive grace of Jesus Christ, who don't live in the reality of that grace, are still in bondage to the desires of the flesh that wage war against our soul that are against what we were called to and designed for. The authoritarian husband or domineering male fundamentally fails to understand God and the gospel. You didn't hear that enough. Listen to it again. The authoritarian husband or domineering male fundamentally fails to understand God and the gospel. They haven't traced their life around Jesus. They haven't said, no, I'm to lay my life down. I'm to elevate those around me, particularly and specifically and first and foremost, my wife. That's who I'm to be. Fundamentally fails to understand God and the gospel, so much so that his prayers, which depend from beginning to end on God's grace, may also be hindered. Hear this, that a man who abuses a woman, a husband who disrespects his wife, A dude anywhere who seeks to be domineering and authoritarian, particularly to his wife, is going to hear from the God of the universe, you've mistreated one of my daughters. You and I have an issue we need to work through. And we're going to work through that 
before you think your prayers are just going to sail through and we're on good terms. You're going to be convicted. I'm going to come after you with the love of a father and the discipline of a father until you are humbled, until you allow Jesus to break into you and break you free for healing. We're called to something different. We're called to look different. We're not called to look the same and to emulate the culture around us. We are called to stand out and be distinct and different. And that goes for wives and husbands and men and women and for all of us who love Jesus. Listen to this last line. The seeds of the reign of God in history are sown. How does it happen? How does God work? How is he working now? Are sown in self-subordinating, self-offering service. Say it another way. In the very way that Jesus very first broke in with his kingdom in the first place on the cross. The seeds of the reign of God in history are sown in self-subordinating, self-offering service. Disruptive grace. That's what we are called to. That's what we're invited into. I've gone way long. We're going to sing a couple songs. I want to invite you to this table in front of us. If you would, if you would pray, pray with me as we come to this table. Jesus, we find ourselves in what is, in systems and orders and relationships and ways of being in this world that just simply are, and many of them are broken. And you and your divine wisdom and power and grace have invited us as your daughters and your sons to be who you are here. You want us to be more like you, that we would trace our lives after you. Some of us right now are wives who are married to husbands who do not believe and do not trust in you. They don't know you. And it breaks their hearts and it's hard and it's difficult. And so would you give them grace beyond what they have? Would you give them strength beyond what they have today to be able to continue to trust you in it? Would you give them strength and grace and wisdom to love their husbands well? And would you reach them and transform their husbands that they would know and follow you? And for husbands here who are married to wives who aren't following Jesus and aren't believing, would you give them a kind of kindness that is supernatural, a strength to respect and to honor their wives? And would you help us to be the kind of community with married or single, young or old, male or female, that we would run after you and seek to, to trace our lives after you and that you would empower us to be people of disruptive grace in the reality of the world that you've placed us in at this time? And would we be able to see more and more of your kingdom break in in surprising and shocking ways? We want to be that kind of people in that kind of church. And as we come to your table this morning, Jesus, we take the bread and we dip it in the juice and we're reminded of your self-offering act of going to the cross for each and every one of us. As we sing this song,